Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at how the rich men with the rich men turned into a viral number one hit and has become the anthem of the working class. Plus, Premier David Eby sends a letter to the Bank of Canada asking for a halt on interest rate hikes. Will it have an impact or is it just political performance art? Plus, why is BC Ferries already cancelling runs for the fall? And we continue our summer staycation series where our producers visit Capilano Suspension Bridge for the first time. What could go wrong? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Affordability, uh, one could argue, remains issue number one for Canadians as well. So it wasn't too surprising today in the news that Premier David Eby is calling on the Bank of Canada to halt further interest rate hikes. He sent a letter to the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem urging him to consider the human impact of rate hikes. Now, the Bank of Canada is set to make another interest rate decision next Wednesday. Now, it's important to remind ourselves that we've had 10 rate hikes, 10 hikes since March of 2022. Here is Premier Eby from this morning. I think it is critically important to go on the record as the Premier of British Columbia to point out to the Bank of Canada that Statistics Canada is saying that the biggest driver of inflation in our country right now is rising mortgage rates, it's rising mortgage costs. And to point out the reality that we see on the ground in British Columbia, that the biggest increasing costs many families face, aside from childcare, which we're talking about today, is housing. And what we're seeing the impact of these increasing rates in terms of bringing on new housing is that rental housing projects are being put on hold. That was uh, Premier Eby speaking on the issue earlier today. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit about the letter to Tiff Macklin is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Richard, welcome. Jazz, thanks for having me. So walk me through this. I mean, what impact? Generally, when when you talk about politicians in the Bank of Canada, the rule is don't meddle, uh, don't be viewed as trying to pressure uh, the Bank of Canada, yet here we have a premier of a province sending a letter. I mean, number one, will this have any impact or is this sort of political performance art? Yeah, so there's a few different things here. First off, I think the consensus is that it is political performance art. But it's also a demonstration about the importance of this issue. It's also important to note that Reuters has just published an article speaking to economists from across the country, and a vast majority of them do not believe that next week when the Bank of Canada makes an announcement, they will be announcing another rate hike. It's based on what they're seeing in the economy and the current conditions. The fact that, as you mentioned, those 10 increases already since last March seem to being having some effect already on inflation, that we're starting to see the market correct itself in some ways. It's also really important to note that the letter outlines a bunch of things around housing and the impact on mortgages and the impact that interest rates have on builders. None of that is in the mandate of the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada's one mandate here is to tackle the issue of inflation, Mm -hmm. and they use their rate hikes in order to do that. So all of that being said, is it good policy to send a letter to the Bank of Canada? Probably not. Is it good politics? Absolutely. Sends a message. It has us talking. It sends a message to British Columbians that the premier is acutely aware that this cost of living issue is the one that matters the most to people. And he wants to be seen as doing everything he can Mm -hmm. uh, to put pressure on Ottawa, be it the prime minister, be it the Bank of Canada, not to touch those rates because it's having a, a disjointed impact on B.C. because of you know, the pressure on our uh, ongoing 
you know, on our housing market and the ongoing housing crisis we have here. I, I mean, that's a legitimate point. And when you look at some of these high rises to, that, that that need to be built, uh, townhouse complexes, yeah. they need a long runway in regards to planning, in regards to zoning, in regards to just going through City Hall. And if everything is on hold, and it, from what I've been hearing, a lot of these companies, larger companies, are just things on hold and say, look, when things get a little bit better, when the first cut comes in the interest rates, perhaps we'll start working or starting working towards another project. But many people are just sitting on their hands right now and by i mean developers there nothing's going to get built for two or three years if if, if we continue this journey that we're on Uh, and i guess that would be concerning to the premier who also wants to see housing getting built yeah it's a nasty cycle here as well you get stuck in rentals there aren't enough rentals you start paying more rent you can't save enough money for a down payment for a house when you get that down payment the mortgage rates are higher you know all of this cycle starts pushing people down further and further and that's you know, that brunt of cost of living. So there is validity there that in the private marketplace where we rely so heavily on private companies to build rentals that they are going to be making decisions based on, you know, what they see with interest rates. The other side of that, though, Jazz, is that we could see a provincial government or a federal government um, spending at a time where rates are high. And yes, they're spending our money, but that's one of the arguments as well we're hearing from economists and policy leaders that, you know, we need to see more leadership uh, from the federal government and the provincial government to spend more money to build these purpose-built rentals to start breaking people out of those cycles. So it's a combination effect here. We know that uh, higher rates means fewer private corporations are going to make that investment. Like you said, you know, they're looking five years down the road. They need stability to know that they're not going to have out of control costs when they build these things. But there's also an argument that one of the things that could be done at a government level is spend, 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 spend your capital money, build these properties as best you can to try to alleviate some of that real intense pressure that we are feeling uh, on the housing market right now. How much of this do you think is worry on Mr. Eby's part and, and, and the NDP? You think, look, we're going to get the blowback even though this is federal policy number one. We got, we're a year away from election. Affordability is issue number one. And people are just really angry, ornery. Uh, we were just talking about uh, Oliver Anthony's uh, breakout hit, Richmond, north of Richmond. There's people just angry at the political class. I mean, there must be some worry, uh, not that they're not leading in the polls, and I understand, that, of course, the NDPR, but uh, there has to be some worry that this kind of stuff starts impacting them or, and starts sticking to them as well. You know, we both know there are people uh, inside government who are watching very closely the sentiment of the electorates, and they saw a municipal election last fall where voters came out and said, we want change. We don't care if it's left or right or middle. We just want change. We saw an unprecedented number of incumbent mayors lose. We're also seeing polls at the federal level that show that people want change. They're sick of Justin Trudeau and the liberals, and they're considering that change, at least what they tell pollsters you know, on the internet or over the phone. The anomaly seems to be the provincial NDP who are riding high in the polls, even though there seems to be that public sentiment. And I think everybody in that inner circle knows that things can change pretty quickly, Jazz. So mm-hmm. yes, there is a part here where David Eby and his team are saying, we need to make it clear to British Columbians that we know that this is a pressure point. We know cost of living uh, is challenging and we're going to do what we can to address it. I, I firmly believe that this government wants to build more housing, wants to allow young families to get into a housing market that is unlike any other in this country, based on the fact that we have basically 
uh, no vacancy for rentals, housing prices that have gone to the point where most uh, two-family income families can't even afford to get into the market. And then on top of that, you have the issue you mentioned before, which is this huge surge of people moving into this province, be it international students, being permanent residents. That massive influx in immigration is putting unprecedented pressure on housing and the need for housing. All of those things combined are making it hard for government. Mm-hmm. And I think EB is acutely aware of that is trying to pull levers where he can you know, considering all of the other things that are happening in that orbit. Yeah, which which I think is fine. But the reality is the, the federal government got out of the housing business uh, in the 70s and 80s, and we're still paying for that. I mean, the stark number yeah. for me, I think, is in the early 1970s, we built about 220, 230,000 homes in this country. We still haven't hit that number now in 2023. Because of labor challenges, because of a variety of reasons, we still cannot hit the number from the early 1970s in regards to homes being built in this country. And I think at one time we peaked at about 23 or 24% where the federal government was actually involved in the building of, of, of affordable housing, and they're not there. So to think that this is going to turn around in a month or a year or two when we've been away from this for a de- few decades when it comes to the federal government, it's not going to change. And I can understand why Mr. Eby at the provincial level level is, is very concerned, uh, and, and I totally understand that. Richard, thanks for your time, my friend. And briefly, Jez, that expectation has changed. The public wants governments to build housing now. Yes. It used to be health care is the number one issue. Now it's we want you to build housing and governments better respond to that. Thanks, Jess. I've traveled every road in this here land. I've been everywhere, man. You're listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back to the show. Now, if you've been listening to our program over the course of this summer, we've had our producers... Every week or so, uh, take us out uh, to uh, landmarks uh, in the Lower Mainland or or just uh, sites that uh, I think most of us have visited or talked about visiting. Uh, we've called it our staycation series. And um, as I was away the last couple of weeks, they even went to uh, White Spot and enjoyed the legendary burger platter. But our producers have also visited Stanley Park and many other landmarks that, you know, you assume all of us have visited, but we haven't. Joining me now is producer Stephen Chang and Ryan Lee Hall. And uh, they went on another, uh, I guess, uh, I guess adventure. Uh, Ryan, Stephen, welcome. Hey, Jazz, how's it going? Good, good, good. Now, Hello, where Jazz. did you guys go today? We actually, recently? we did go to the Capilano Suspension Bridge. I ah. did just want to mention as well, since your son did go to the Drake concert last night, and Steven did as well, who is behind me. Yes. Uh, all I've been hearing all day is you just singing those lyrics there, Jazz. I had to record it, too. Why you got to fight, fight with, with me at Cheesecake? You know I love to go there. This is a place for families that drive Camrys and go to Disney. So catchy, Jazz. Why not on stage? Why were you not on stage last night, Jazz? Where were you? I think it's pretty obvious why I wasn't on stage (laughs) right there, guys. Well done. Well done. That must have taken a while to mix, so I appreciate that. Now, Ryan, uh, I think the the first visit uh, uh, that uh, you and Stephen went on was to Stanley Park. Yes, sir. And uh, you liked No, Did you like it? Absolutely not. You did not. I did not not like that park one bit. Remember, a park is a park. Yes, that's that's what what you said. And then you went to the art gallery, and you liked the art gallery. I loved the art gallery. It was very nice. They had a sneaker exhibit. That's why. That's right. I remember that. So this time you and Stephen went to the Capitol Island Suspension Bridge. Bridge. Now, Stephen, you've been there before, right? I have. I've I've gone multiple times already. This is nothing new for me. So you were taking Ryan, who has never been to the Capitol Island Suspension Bridge. Yeah, I really wanted to get lucky. You know, I'm one for one with Ryan right now. He hated the Stanley Park uh, area. I uh, He liked the art gallery. So you know what? Capitol Island Suspension Bridge. He's never been there yet. I wanted to take him. And here's how it went down. 
There's a lot of people on it right now. I can see it sway just a little bit. Yeah. But I think it'll be okay here. I think it'll be just fine. Honestly, like, when we get to, like, the middle point where it kind of dips down, that's where I'm a little nervy about. Okay. But uh, apart from that... Well, let me know if you want me to hold your hand. Okay, for sure. Okay, yeah. All right, here we go. First few steps, Ryan. I'll say, currently, it's not pleasant. It's definitely not a pleasant experience right now. But... uh, You're doing great. Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I wouldn't call it fun. I'm doing all right. Again, like I said, it's just a, it's a really odd sensation. The view's really nice, I'll say that. I think I'm liking it a lot, like in terms of the view, but the actual bridge, like, I don't know about that. Okay, Ryan, looks like we're pretty much halfway down the bridge. Thank God. <laughs> Jesus. I think the height part, I'm fine with. Okay. It's just the swaying part. That's the part where I'm a little bit like, eh, not a fan. Not a fan here, Steven. That's crazy, Steven. Did you see what I saw? What did you see? The little kid. That's kid? crazy, man. Little kid just chilling, just walking. Doing great, sweetie. Shut up. <laughs> like a 90 year old guy going Oh, thank God. Oh, you did it. Thank God. There you go. Look, man, I get it sturdy, but things aren't supposed to sway that much. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel after crossing that for the first time? Relieved. <laughs> thank God I'm off that. Holy. Oh. Do we have to walk back? Is there, there like, the is there a shuttle we can take that goes all the way? No, that's the only, that's the only way back. Oh that's, that's the only way you can go back to that other side is... Like, you can't even walk straight. Also notice you're kind of running, running out of breath right now. Yeah, I'm a little bit tired here. A little bit winded. The limbs feel a little bit, like, jelly, you know? You know what it feels like? Remember in PE, in, like, high school, when they, when they made you do the wall sit? Yes. And then after, your legs would, like, buckle? Yeah. And you'd feel that jelly and you couldn't even walk? Mm-hmm. That's how it feels. That's you right now. Yeah. Got it. So now I'm thinking back to 14-year-old Ryan, who couldn't even get up after the wall set. And his teacher had to be like, yo, Ryan, Ryan, just chill, just chill, just chill for a second. Relax, it's okay. Shoutouts to Mr. Bezzaretti, grade 9 PEPM. Shoutouts to him. I'm thinking about him right now. Holy. You know what I don't get? How is this fun? How, how is this? Yeah. This is fun. I'm not having fun. I'm not sold. You also just feel more like a legit thing. Yeah, but like, to be honest, I never really cared. <laughs> never cared to be one. I don't know, man. I don't see the pole. I don't know why anyone would willingly want to cross that bridge. Tons of people from around the world, but across this bridge, and you are one of them. Okay, do I get a plaque or something? Is there a prize? Uh, or? No, but if you want, I can buy you some beaver balls. I don't even know what those are. <laughs> it feels like, like I know we're on ground, but it feels like, like I'm still walking on something that's swaying. Ah. It's weird, man. Just the residual effects of the bridge. Yeah, it's just odd. Well, would you like to take a break before we go back on the bridge? Yeah, we'll make our way there slowly. What do you want to say to people who stop in the middle of the bridge to take a picture? Make it quick. <laughs> like, you shouldn't be more than 10 seconds. What I want to know is the first guy who, like, built the bridge. Yeah. Why? Why did you want to go to the other side? And if you did, why don't you build, like, a proper bridge that's <laughs> flat? Like, Well, he probably did have the budget for it. Well, no I'm, city planning is expensive in Vancouver. It's nowadays. 2023, I'm sure, at some point throughout time. Well, right, if you can't afford that. housing, let me see if we can afford a sturdier bridge. Well, then why build one? That's what I say. It's for the fun, Ryan. It's for the fun. Enjoy it. Wait, is that that bridge again? This is the bridge again. Okay, give me a sec here. Okay. Give me a sec. <laughs> this man needs a moment. This man needs a moment. <sighs> saying a silent prayer right now i can see you're sweating too i am <laughs> that was all just from crossing the first bridge look there's a dog this dog crossed the bridge yeah it's a dog friendly bridge i wonder if that dog was thinking about its owner like what are we doing here do you think it's sharing the same thoughts as you do maybe he looks pretty happy though should we go all right here we go 
Hey Ryan, my legs are tired. Do you want to give me a piggyback while we cross this bridge? Shut up. <laughs> oh, this is the shakiest point. Oh my oh, god, thank you god. made it. Thank god. <laughs> so, we're back. Okay. Now, there's a lot of different opinions when crossing the bridge. You see a wide variety. I saw somebody who was like, had their eyes closed, breathing slowly, trying to cross it. And then you see kids being like, oh, it's not that scary. I'm just like, come on, man. I'm kind of shaking the world. That's crazy, man. Oh, that is not fun. What else is going through your mind after experiencing all those bridges? That I will never do this ever again in my life. Ryan was not made to cross this bridge. Ryan was made to stay on solid ground. Maybe when Ryan has a wife and family, maybe you might have a change of heart. They can go without me. <laughs> I'm very proud of you. You know, this is a... Thanks, buddy. It's a nerve-wracking experience that you just went through. I live to make you proud. Yes, and I'm very proud. I think uh, you serve my life's purpose of making you proud. I better get a round of applause when we get back. Yeah, you, you do. From the five people in the office. <laughs> well, you know what? I think you deserve something from the gift shop. No, I'm good. No. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's go home. Okay, we're out of here. So Ryan, I gotta ask you, you're, are you afraid of heights? You know what? It's The height wasn't the, the issue for me. It was just the swaying of the bridge. Like you're trying to walk straight and you can't. Like you're, I, feel, I felt like I was always leaning towards my left. And when you do that, you're kind of bumping into people coming the opposite way. Uh-huh. And then it just, it just didn't feel like I was on solid ground. It, just, it wasn't a nice you experience. You didn't feel Jazz. safe whatsoever. Jazz, Jasmine, I was doing a silent ardas here across the bridge like it was crazy man i, I couldn't I, I just i don't understand why anyone would ever want to do that were you really I like you were praying no honestly <laughs> i was man i was it was ridiculous and then steven's behind me just so calm and so collected and i'm like how are you this calm and he's like oh you know i've done it three four times six i was like times. skipping on the bridge too mind you <laughs> yeah, right behind him i was just skipping through the it. people that hold you up when they take photos oh my god jazz it made me so mad it's just like so start it, walking i just want to get across here was it parents picking up their kids or something no it was just people that would just like turn around and the person behind them would just snap a photo real oh, quick but geez. some of them take like 20 30 seconds <laughs> you didn't enjoy it no not one bit you yes. would not go no one not one bit you know the people there the staff did you know assure me that it's a sturdy bridge it, it can is. hold the weight of they said a 747 jet but then they also did tell me it's like the height of like up to the collarbone of the statue of liberty too and i'm like the height doesn't scare me it's the fact that it's it's not solid <laughs> so it's just swing. to confirm just to confirm so you weren't happy with capilano suspension bridge no you really didn't enjoy stanley park no a park is a park is yeah a it's almost like i don't enjoy the outdoors here but you'd like the art gallery yeah. because it had the sneaker exhibit. it had the sneaker exhibit <laughs> there you go that's what i'm into oh are this, is this the end of the series we're gonna do this again yeah we'll do this again and maybe next time i should uh bring someone to me who's much more grateful than ryan maybe jerry maybe i'll go with jerry next time our show contributor yeah this is yeah. me having more fun with everything they've been doing <laughs> whenever i take ryan it's just grumpiness all the time we should take him to hell's gate have you been, have you been to hell's gate in the fraser Canyon at no, all? I have not. Tram? No, I, have. I oh. haven't even done Hell's Gate at the PE Jazz. <laughs> oh, we're not doing the PE one. Absolutely we should, you know, not. we should send it in Nanaimo. They do bungee jumping there. <laughs> no. Do you, are you trying to get rid of me or something? No, What's going on? You enjoy it. Ryan, Stephen, thank you. No problem. It's right. been fun, Jazz. <laughs> it's been fun. That's Stephen Chang and Ryan Lee Hall, our producers, was part of our staycation series. Canada will change how it counts non permanent residents. The news comes today from Stats Canada after an economist said the current methodology may have overlooked, get this, about a million foreign students and other workers. The decision comes amid a debate in this country, of course, on housing affordability, and some of it, of course, is blamed on an increase in migrants and international students, which, of course, is fueling demand for homes just as rising costs have slowed construction. Uh, Yesterday, CIBC Capital Markets economist Benjamin Tall said the argument 
for any such limits would be even more pressing if the government had the real figures. Now, Stats Canada said it stood by its figures, but added that it will publish new, more detailed data on non-permanent residents next month using a revised methodology. Uh, Just to give you a context in regards to how many international students we have In our country, in 2022, nearly one in 48 people in Canada were international students uh, here on a study permanent. And of course, if you just have to go to some of the suburbs or in Vancouver itself and see how many of them are working uh, in, in different jobs while going to school as well. But we've invited all these folks, but where do they live? Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Ron Butler. He is a mortgage broker at Butler Mortgages and a longtime guest on this show. We love having him on. Ron, thank you for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, lots to talk about. How did we get into this mess in your mind? Well, it's an interesting bunch of uh, governmental mumbo-jumbo that you run into all the time. The provinces effectively have a carte blanche. If they have uh, issued uh, requests for student visas, they just get them. So if they recruit as many as they want, as, as much as you can, if you fill them up, uh, if, unfortunately, some for-profit operations got involved in that as well, uh, the government doesn't pay attention. The federal government who issues the visa will just issue the visa at the educational institution's request. So even though the feds are saying, oh, look, it's a provincial problem, but once again, you can't pretend you don't have any oversight. You can't pretend that uh, we're just going to let as many people in as humanly possible. If you think about it, if we had this, if the same number of, of students showed up in the States, foreign students showed up in the USA, there'd be like 7 million of them. I mean, the the Americans wouldn't even dream of that ever happening. So it is definitely different here, and it's a real impact on our our whole housing situation. So what are are you seeing? And you you live in Ontario. What are you seeing there? Well, the, the most important thing to remember is the victims here. The true victims are the students. You know, we've had situations where we've uncovered uh nine students in an unfinished basement with the only partitions being uh, curtains hung on cords and they got a futon on the floor and that their room is a curtained off area. Uh, There's nine of them there and uh, the landlord's charging $850 for unfinished basements with a washroom in one corner and a microwave in the other. That is, uh, I mean... (laughs) We all know this is happening. You see actually a lot of private institutions as well. Uh, I would argue that they're basically diploma mills more than anything. We invite these students to come to this country. And it seems we, first of all, don't even provide appropriate housing. But it's also just we're milking them dry in regards to some of these degrees that we're offering. I'm not talking about our public institutions, but even some of these private schools that they've set up. Well, it's absolutely true. These are heavily recruited in-home countries. And quite frankly, I don't think we have any any real idea of what's being told to these people. Certainly, if you told them that uh, there was no space for them to sleep in a, in a country that can get kind of cold and wet in the, in the winter, I don't think they would all have jumped at the chance uh, because that's effectively what we're doing. You see a certain amount of recruitment of people who have no clue what they're coming into. And that's just out of line. 
Now, uh, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, CMHC, says the country has to build over 800,000 units a year. Uh, Last year, we built 260,000. The numbers just don't add up. Where are we headed in your mind, within the context, of course, as well with um, the uh, the uh, Bank of Canada potentially raising rates again next week. We don't know, but it's having a huge impact in regards to even just companies wanting to build houses and new housing. Where do you think we're headed in all of this? Well, you made the great point that increasing financing costs is actually going to cause fewer homes to be built next year than this year. That's actually going to happen because of the high interest rates for uh, development financing and for building financing. So we're going to have, we're not going to hit even the previous year's numbers. We're never going to hit CMHC's numbers. But again, it often comes down to problems in government. For instance, CMHC is an excellent program uh, of building and financing um, uh, purpose-built rental properties. This is free enterprise building uh, a rental unit, like a multifamily unit. Uh, Right now, they are 10 months behind on approvals. They, they, don't, they don't have enough people to work on the files at CMHC. Hmm. That's a fact. That's an absolute fact. It's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable, but it's true. The thing we need the most, which is purpose-built rental properties, are 10 months behind on just getting the CMHC approval. Uh, what do we do with international students? I mean, we do need... Uh immigrants of this country uh, and generally when people do come and study here uh, they stay here but are we going to have to dramatically just cut back on the amount of international students we're letting into this country it's 800,000 a year uh, and we're, we're in the midst of a housing crisis is, is this going to mean we just start saying no well let's talk about the real real problem behind this our own Canadian students are the, the people who are local their tuitions are being heavily, heavily subsidized by the extremely high tuition costs of the international students. Mm-hmm. If we were to dramatically cut back on international students, either the provincial governments would start running even bigger deficits on education, or more likely the fees for, con- for Canadian students, for people living here right now, would have to go up substantially. So we've boxed ourselves into this incredibly strange place where our universities, if they didn't have this massive number of international students, they would have to probably raise fees for the Canadian students. Hmm. So we have got a planning failure of epic proportions. Uh, let's go back to the broader issue of the Bank of Canada for a second. Uh, I know it's it's an impossible uh, to answer this. No one knows until we know. But do you think the Bank of Canada is looking at the sentiment from Canadians? Our, our premier today, David Eby, has fired off a letter to the Bank of Canada saying, hey, this is having a significant in- impact on people's lives. You should really be rethinking any sort of increase moving forward. Uh, do you think the Bank of Canada is is hearing that message? Well, the bank has consistently indicated that they feel sorry for what's happening, but they will not change their position, much in the same way as the uh, Fed chairman of the states, Jerome Powell, said, no, he will not change his position no matter what happens in the economy. I, don't, I'm not, I think the market is pricing in about a 35% chance for an increase next week, but it's also pricing in an 80% chance for a Bank of Canada increase prior to the end of this year. So that's very meaningful. I mean, we're starting to see more than ever before, more than all of last year, we're starting to see some cracks in in mortgage borrowers' abilities to make payments. Mm. Ron, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Glad to be here. 
Yesterday, we learned the first case of a new highly mutated variant of the virus that causes COVID-19 has been had been detected for the first time in Canada, right here in B.C. The variant, dubbed BA-286, was confirmed in the Fraser Health region and involves a person who had not traveled outside the province. So what does this mean and what can we expect this fall when it comes to our province's ongoing response to COVID? Well, joining me now to discuss the issue is Adrian Dix, B.C.'s Minister of Health. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon. It's been that kind of day, has it? <laughs> a little bit hard to tell in summer. You know, we sort of have a different a different approach. Good afternoon. I think it's good afternoon. It is good afternoon. So uh, with yesterday's news, what does this mean uh, to you in regards to our response? And how should British Columbians uh, sort of view this upcoming fall uh, in regards to just public safety? Well, um, we expect new variants uh, of the COVID-19 vaccine. The, the, the virus lives to spread, and so it varies itself all the time. So it certainly wasn't unexpected that this variant would show up in Canada or in British Columbia. And I think to a degree, it reflects the robustness of our surveillance system that we, we have detected it in this way. We're not seeing a lot of it. Obviously, right now, it hasn't been... Uh, uh, picked up in our latest uh, wastewater surveillance, for example. But it shows uh, what the COVID-19 um, uh, virus does, what, the, what it does, which is to uh, um, this subvariant, this variant of the COVID-19 pandemic is one of many. It's one of many of the Omicron variant of concern. It's not the major one in BC, but it tells us that... Uh, uh, we're going to be dealing with COVID-19 for some time. Mm-hmm. And in regards to immunization, uh, what can we expect this fall in regards to, will, we, will, we, will there be another campaign? A very significant campaign, both against uh, uh, updating the COVID-19 uh, vaccine, with we believe and we expect and have ordered an updated vaccine, which responds um, uh, more to Omicron variants of concern, as well as a very significant influenza um, uh, campaign, both of which are important and necessary. Between them, we'll certainly order well over 5 million doses in BC. We have a very significant um, base of a campaign, both from our public health units across BC, but also our pharmacies. More than 1,200 pharmacies will be participating in the flu campaign, more than 1,100 in the COVID-19 campaign, mm-hmm. which gives us a capacity on the ground to deliver vaccine um, effectively and in a way that really works for people. Uh, and I think it reflects the increasing and important role pharmacy is playing in all of our vaccine campaigns. So you can expect that in the fall. We get detailed information about it probably in a couple of weeks, uh, Jess, okay. we'll lay out the, the, the campaign for people so that they can see. But I think what you'll see is what you've seen before which is a focus first on the most vulnerable. So you can imagine people in long-term care, all of which received the booster in the spring, but will be, um, will be obviously high on the list. Mm-hmm. People who are clinically vulnerable, who have immune deficiencies, and then everybody. And so what, what you're going to see is the opportunity for people to get vaccinated against both COVID-19 and the flu, and we strongly recommend mm-hmm. uh, that they do so. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I've just lost count here. This would be if you've taken taken all the shots. This would be the fifth one, would it not? Yeah, that's right. That'd be the fifth. Okay. Now I don't want to spend too much time 
you know, uh, on on this issue. But I know there have been uh, some folks who still want much more stricter rules in regards to schools, masking, um, right down to businesses being open. Uh, there is no talk, and I'm going to assume no talk of any of that happening, and, and there's no need to do that. No. Oh, we have, um, obviously, some rules in place. BC is unique in having the strongest protections for our healthcare system of provinces in Canada. How with respect to um, uh, new public health orders, I would not expect to see them um, uh, coming up. But that doesn't mean we can't, we don't need to be aware and really follow our key rules, what we've learned in the pandemic, which is to stay home when you're sick, which is a critical one, an important one, um, which is to wash our hands frequently, which is to follow, um, uh, to wear masks when appropriate. And sometimes it is appropriate. And uh, and to stay up, of course, on your vaccination. These are the these are the COVID rules, the COVID lessons that we've learned that are important, and really valuable, mm-hmm. and uh, we've got to continue to follow them. Um, in regards to uh, the past conversation we've had, where health officials have been let go uh, because they d- were not getting uh, the particular uh, vaccinations, is there been any? discussion on revisiting whether to hire some of those individuals back because the situation is different now? Well, um, people who are in hospital, imagine acute care hospital, are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19 and its impacts Mm -hmm. as they are in long-term care. So it is not, uh, it's a provincial health order, what you're speaking of from Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Henry, one that I support. So I don't want to say you know, it's not a question of passing the buck. It's one that I uh, strongly support and one that continues to be in place and I expect will continue to be in place. All right. So, Minister, thank you. But I want to confirm once again, expect a rollout uh, of uh, booster shots uh, and information in and around uh, how it'll, the campaign itself will be coming out sometime in September, I assume. Yeah, it'll, it'll be coming up in mid-September and I expect, um, uh, obviously, the campaign, as it, as it is most years, will be in October. Uh, but I expect you're going to see the full uh, the full plan laid out in, in the middle of September um, from Dr. Henry, from myself, and obviously other health officials. We've got a, a great team, and I think BC can be really proud of, of how we've delivered uh, vaccines to people over the course of the last number of years. Mm-hmm. Minister, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Take care. Eh? Well, John Deeth has helped build more than $5 billion worth of homes here in Canada and East Asia. He was a longtime member of the BC Bar Association, uh, but made his career in real estate, whether that be financing, investment and development in Canada, the United States and around the world for over 50 years. Now, Mr. Deeth recently told the Vancouver Sun, though, while working out of Hong Kong and China, Macau, Singapore, here in Canada, he occasionally witnessed suspicious dealings, uh, apparent money laundering, bribing, tax evasion, underground banking, and other forms of potential corruption. Uh, he realized that uh, that many cases are virtually impossible to prove in a court of law. But based on his experience, he's written a crime thriller. It's called Laundering the Dragon, Black Renminbi. It's published by Adagio Media. Mr. Deeth joins us now. John, thank you for speaking to us today. Hi, Jazz. Nice to be with you. Yeah. So let's chat a little bit about um, uh, this book, Laundering the Dragon. Uh, you know, you've witnessed a lot, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about uh, your past experience. Uh, how difficult was it for you to take some of those you know, things that you've witnessed and you've seen and to put it into a novel? 
Well, it became a novel because uh, I realized that the background information to write a technical book was actually not there and, and actually isn't there, as Cullen found. We can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it became a, um, it became a, um, a light thriller about my lifetime, but then I decided to take it right back to the history when, when uh, communist China was formed in China and uh, what happened there, and how that progressively affected Canada. And it has, and his poor old Canada now ever ever accepting all these things that are going on, uh, while China, um, so far, has managed to have the upper hand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in regards to what you witnessed, uh, broadly speaking, what kind of things uh, could you touch upon in regards to where you said, you know what, this this is not right? What kind of things did you see? Oh boy, where do you start? I mean, I, I, I've been very lucky in my life. I, I'm a working class kid, mm-hmm. left school when I was 15 in England, and I uh, ended up as chair of one of the biggest corporations in North America. And I've and I've worked all around the world. But my first movement when I left uh, university, because <clears throat> eventually I managed to get back into school, when I left university, I became um, a, a kid of the empire. I mean, that, that sounds like ancient language now, doesn't it? I mean, my, <laughs> grandkid, my grandkids all laugh when I say that. But really, you know, I went back to Hong Kong when it was a colony and when the British were in control 100%. And when I realized that all the stuff I'd been told as a kid about everything being British and best and the wonderful empire and all that was just not true. The whole thing was just, just steeped in crime and and kickbacks and payoffs. And, and basically, that's still the way most of the world is. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, not yet Canada. Mm-hmm. But I see signs of it creeping in. And that's really what happened. Uh, my wife and I were in Hong Kong and... Um, we um, we had a meeting with a with an ex colleague of mine. She laughingly said to him, "I suppose you still pay um, millions of dollars in bribes the way John was experiencing when he was here." Mm-hmm. He laughed and said, "Come on, hundreds of millions. We're a big company." <laughs> and then we say we say, "Well, what happens to that?" She said, they, "He said, well, it probably finds its way to Canada, and that's basically what has been happening." With a federal government, which has done nothing at all to stop this. Yeah. Now, do you think, just from your vantage point now, Xi Jinping went? You know, I used to live in. I lived in China in twenty eleven and twenty twelve, just before Xi Jinping got into power. Uh, but you could already see them tightening and uh, tightening at least uh, their grip on on civil society and and openness. And and there has been some attempt to go after corrupt officials. Do you think uh, there has been any sort of uh, you know, deep desire to deal with the structural ch- challenges within that system to fix it at all in your mind? Absolutely. I, I mean, I've got many, many Chinese friends. As uh, as uh, one of the reports said, uh, um, I think the Chinese are a great people. I really do. But mm-hmm. I think they've just got an awful system now. And, you know, I've experienced that during my lifetime developing uh, as it did in Hong Kong. Uh, through Hong Kong now, mm-hmm. um, yes, absolutely. But the changes that happened in China, I believe, were certainly not, um, they happened, but they were moving other people out and moving other people in. It was getting more control personally for the 
to the ones who were in control. It, it really had nothing whatsoever to do with ethics. Mm-hmm. Now, in regards to Canada itself, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine recently in the business community. He says one of the problems prior to all all our, you know, challenges with China now with foreign interference and the broader conversation that's changed a little bit in the last couple of years is that China has been viewed as a place for easy money and most importantly, fast money, not just in regards to selling residential real estate, but also, you know, attracting investment for some of our uh, resource sector, whether it be mining, whether it be other industries that we viewed it as fast money and easy money. Um, Do you think that has changed now? I don't know. I, I think it's changed from a from a Chinese point of view in China, mm-hmm. and I think it's a very <clears throat> it's becoming a very different place in which to invest. I mean, I've been I've been working all over the world, and uh, um, India, for example. I mean, every country has got its own characteristics, hasn't it? As you know, mm-hmm. and uh, China is, uh, is is it goes through change after change after change. It's going through another change now, obviously. The population is reducing um, the, the number of people. It's, uh, it's running into those sort of problems, and, uh, and the economy will will fade. I mean, uh, at some point. And then what happens? How do the how do the uh, the Chinese government themselves, the Communist Party, because everything, as you know, having been there, is controlled by the party and individuals in the party. I mean, how? How will they react? Will they will they react externally? Will mm-hmm. they attack an external enemy? I mean, to to unify people at home. I mean, we will, we have to wait and see, don't we? Yeah, um, you were talking about the Cullen report. What disappointed you about the Cullen report? Well, it was, that it was basically useless. I mean, but I, I don't blame the provincial government for that. I mm-hmm. mean. Um, my my wife and I actually were in in when we went actually when we went to to uh, Hong Kong as I mentioned and the fellow mentioned about the the great amount of money he was spending, we we actually then went on to London and we had a, a meeting in London with some bankers, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the banks it was public knowledge at the time had just been dinged one point nine billion in the United States for laundering money, so we said to the bankers. Um, what do you uh, what do you what do you tell us about this this laundering stuff? Because at the same time there was big news in Europe that the Deutsche Bank had been literally, I mean, laundering tens of billions of dollars out of Russia, and they'd been caught at it. So the the bankers, I mean, this was just a chat over dinner. Yeah, the bankers said, uh, "Look, come on, um, what that subject you want to raise? We're not even prepared to discuss about it." And he said, no banker in the world is going to discuss that subject with you because, it's, you know, we, we, we just can't discuss it. Yeah, so yeah. Then we came back to Canada mm-hmm. and, believe it or not, um, David Ebby had started up on the, the Cullen thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here was Canada now. I mean, money laundering had officially come back to Canada. People were now talking about money laundering in Canada, of all things, and uh, that's what Cullen was. So, you know, I think Cullen, as a, as a, a result, a million, what was it, um, 1,900 pages mm-hmm. of, of gobbledygook, um, ending up with, with actually, I, as far as I can see, no results. I think, but, but it did its job. It, it, it has 
attracted attention to money laundering. Th- that the it money has. laundering the, the, the money laundering is in the hands of the federal government, not not the provincial government. No, I think you're right, and that's exactly what I was about to say. And I mean, I I don't have a problem with the Cullen report, but but it's still provincial, and some of which much of it was focused on casinos when 95% of the money laundering in this country is banking and that is federal and you raise a very good point there. What do you want to see moving forward uh, in regards to how we actually fundamentally deal with this issue? Do you think there should be a national inquiry of some sort? Uh, What would you like to see done where we can fundamentally deal with this issue because it is ongoing, it is continuing and we do not arrest people, we do not charge people. We have not seen high profile arrests or convictions in this country on on the issue of money laundering. What What would you like to see done this, this is absolutely the reason why I wrote my book. <clears throat> the, um, it, it was intended to be a technical book, as I said. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find the facts I needed to do it. So I started writing a book about uh, corruption in Canada. And basically, my concern is not actually the, the, the well, it is the overall figure, figures, of course, and the big deals and everything, the, the big money. But my problem is the creeping attitude in Canada to, I don't like to use the word ethics, because ethics to me is something you can't even define. Ethics is a, it's so subjective that it doesn't mean anything, but the creeping attitude in Canada is, is, uh, is uh, at an everyday level, is that people tend to um, accept um, what you might say is sleazy behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll give you an example, um, tax evasion. Um, I wouldn't like to say you personally have been involved in this, but you probably have. I mean, <laughs> money laundering is, uh, is, a, is, a, is, again, Cullen doesn't define money laundering. I would, if I were doing Cullen, I would have defined money laundering and what I meant by it up front, straight away. I would say, this is what I mean by money laundering. Money laundering, um, is, I don't know if people are totally aware of this, but money laundering is a, is a knock-on crime, is, is a a guy from CSIS told me, he said, we don't even really take money laundering as such seriously. It's a knock-on crime. Money laundering has to have dirty money before it can be laundered. Obviously, if you're laundering money, you have to be laundering dirty money. But Canada hasn't got any mechanism going to determine publicly and in court and successfully, including um, Fintrack. Um, what is dirty money? So if you can't establish the dirty money, however, can you expect, say, a poor, lowly real estate broker to say, I'm, I, I'm, I'm suspicious of money laundering because the, the government and the officials themselves can't establish money laundering. They're not charging anyone. No, you're absolutely right. John, we've run out of time. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.